Welcome everyone to the Microservices for Everyone podcast, part two. My name is Tom Fanero. Let's take another journey down the road of architecture for microservices. We will be describing in more detail what microservices is and is not. Let's take the second tour and focus on the architecture and the people who help build microservices. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to the Microservices for Everyone podcast, where we help you re-energize your business strategies. I will be your guest host once again today. My name is Ozil DeBastos, and this is part two of a multi-part series on all things related to microservices. We hope you enjoyed part one, and today we welcome back once again the official host of this podcast, Tom Fanera. We're back for part two, Tom. How's it going? Hello, Oz. Nice to be back. It's great to have you back. Of course, we're excited for part two. And Tom, in our last podcast episode, we discussed what microservices is not. Can you please describe to us more in depth for our developer audience this time around? Sure. That's a good way to start. The two most confusing terms out in the IT world when it comes to microservices are API and SOA. Uh, API means application programming interface, and that has been a way to talk to an application that was not originally designed to communicate with, um, particularly other applications. Um, it's a closed loop, so to speak. It essentially wraps around a monolithic application and allows communication uh, with aspects of its functionality. APIs um, are an application unto itself, uh, but very far apart from microservices. However, a microservice does have uh, an, AP, an interface we call an API, um, but we could talk about that later. So an API is part of a microservice, but a microservice is not an API. Yes, that's a, that's a great way to put it. Now it comes to um, what's referred to as an SOA, okay. um, service-oriented architecture, which um, was that pattern was designed with the intent of communicating a specific grouping of information, but not as finely grained as a microservice. Uh, they're very close in purpose, but... SOA is more a group of services for what is called um, software as a service, um, as a business model. Salesforce is a great example uh, of an SOA or um, uh, software as a service. It's a grouping of marketing sales-based modules for the purpose of helping your sales team. Microservices are distinct modules that can be grouped in any form or fashion to suit all your business needs in a very flexible way, mainly because they are finely grained and intended to service your complete enterprise enterprise um, workflows. Wow, that is clear, and I can see the power of that. Very powerful, and yeah. that's how companies like Amazon, eBay, Netflix adapt and expand so quickly. Mm. But it's very important to get the granularity right. Tom, can we go back to the naming convention we discussed last time and discuss why proper naming conventions are important? 
Yes, uh, right in there with differentiating from APIs and SOA is naming conventions. Uh, remember, we are working in a team and not for the benefit of just software developers. Um, so we talked last time that microservices take on the literal name of what they represent to the organization in the form of a noun. Um, however, there's usually a drill down. Um, and in tech terms, uh, that's usually called a namespace. Uh, and um, to make sure that the service uh, is, uh, is uniquely named. Um, this has many purposes. Uh, and it's very, very important to get it right uh, from the beginning. So going back to the payroll example we mentioned uh, in part one, a namespace would be um, the accounting uh, department or domain, as we, we call it in, in Tech Talk, and um, a subdomain called accounts payable, and then the actual microservice um, finely grained object is called the payables. All right, we're back with Tom Fanera to discuss the team it takes to produce microservices and their roles. Tom, can you describe the team? Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a small group. Uh, actually, Jeff Bezos of Amazon coined the phrase, um, and I'm paraphrasing him a little bit, um, that no team should be larger than you can feed two large pizzas. Uh, I guess that's called the pizza principle. Um, this is mainly to keep the teams focused and have them maintain a self-contained sense of purpose and responsibility uh, to produce um, the final product. And the emphasis is on the product, not 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 the pro the project. Um, that's a different focus. Um, so um, then, typically in an agile Scrum microservices environment, you have two to three full-time software developers writing the code, a scrum master, product owner, and then sometimes uh, a project owner. Um, however, you'll also need a qualified network engineer or DevOps manager to help manage uh, test and production deployments in the cloud um, as either, um, you know, live microservices um, and um, in, in their full architecture. Um, and we can touch upon that more later. That has a nice feel to it in terms of keeping the team focused. Yes. Um, the Scrum Master is responsible for keeping the project focused and um, provides the necessary resources to prevent um, uh, delivery obstacles. Uh, the product owner is, the again, the liaison to the users and the people who, who use or need to benefit from the product the most. Um, the... They must also work probably with a small group of business analysts. Now, Tom, what about the developers or the microservice architects and the software developers? Do they have a methodology? Uh, one of your best questions. Yeah, Oz. Um, uh, they, uh, yes, they do. Um, for microservices, um, it's called extreme programming or um, otherwise referred to as XP. Wow, that sounds extreme. <laughs> actually, actually, quite the contrary. Uh, extreme programming emphasizes horizontality between teammates and, in, and individual accountability to develop trust, effective communication, and openness. All right, that's my kind of team. 
Uh, that's because you're a great guy, Oz. Um, well, thank you. And, um, uh, and then there's five values of extreme programming. Uh, and those are communication, simplicity, feedback, courage, and respect. So a vertical hierarchy is viewed as destructive to quality and causes communication breaks, closed loops, alienation, and arrogance. Uh, the last things you need uh, to build quality um, microservices. Also, the XPT, the XP team um, are small, as mentioned before, um, and they perform constant testing and keep the software um, small as necessary. Sounds like microservices, right? Finally, um, it's a test first, then write code methodology as well. Don't you need a program first, then test? No, and it's a little bit counterintuitive. Um, you write your test as what as what's referred to as units or unit testing. Then you write your micro uh, okay. service. Um, so you have a kind of a uh, a framework um, for testing them, and uh, and the test actually serve to um, make sure that the microservices are done well. Um, so they they actually control the the granularity and quality of the microservice. Um, so yes, it's a test first, uh, build after um, methodology, which I, I understand is it's a bit counterintuitive. But if you think about it, it um, uh, this is a way to control quality uh, is by writing your your testing first. Tom. I'm very curious. Can we start with describing the architecture from ground up? Sure. Um, but first, um, we must remember that a microservice must first pass the cert a certain criteria before moving on to the next steps. Okay. Um, and there's usually about six criteria that they generally have to pass. Um, the first one is... Um, as we've mentioned before, small as necessary or granular. Uh, second is freestanding uh, and no dependencies. Uh, third, standard communication protocol, which contains the four verbs that we discussed um, in part one, usually called um, tech terms, get, post, put, and delete. Uh, fourth, the ability to scale in terms of load balancing when things get really, really busy and crazy. Um, five, uh, domain-specific naming convention, which we talked about uh, prior. And the decentralization of data storage. So in other words, a microservice usually gets its own, its own personal database. Okay, I think I'm starting to get to know these little applications now. <laughs> yeah, um, Another feature that a microservice must have um, is their own internal routing um, mm. technology. Uh, and this is usually called a controller. And it routes incoming calls to the service to the corresponding verb that we, we mentioned, get, post, put, and delete. Um, it's ex easy, it's um, essential that um, there's an internal dispatching uh, controller. Um, and that is a piece of... Uh, software with some configuration. I'm feeling better about what they look like inside. 
Yes, um, there is um, another consideration um, that the development team and um, has to really, really strongly consider, and that's what is called business rules or business logic. Fun stuff. So that's all messy stuff users complain about when an app does not function according to their needs. Yes, you could definitely say that. Okay, so where do they go or where does it go? Uh, they go usually in three places in a microservice uh, architecture. Um, sometimes they're packed into the microservice itself, but that needs to be kept to a minimum and only unique to the microservice. Um, they can go in a in separate micro a separate microservice, um, which is a very which could be just a simple procedural script, um, or a more complex business logic microservice that has multiple business objects. Um, um, you know, handling all those rules and uh, and business logic and business rules really um, can be they can make you and break you. They're they can be extremely complicated, but if you handle them right um, in microservices and you organize your app really well around them, um, you can. This is what really, really can accelerate you. Okay, so they are private parts to the architecture. Yes, they're very private um, okay. and they're very secure because essentially they pretty much contain your 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 trades uh, secrets um, and, and processes. Um, it's almost the the DNA of um, of your company process. Okay. okay, I prefer the privacy, especially in a new startup company. What's next, Tom? The next step is uh, where are they? How are microservices developed, and and ultimately where do they live when they when they go live? I was just going to ask that question. There are many flavors, um, if you will, on this, um, but before. We discuss where they live, a little bit about where they're developed. Um, in today's remote style of working, they are usually developed by small teams on remote virtual development PCs built as uh, virtual machines out of the cloud. So developers can work in tandem or as individuals, completely remote from each other, um, or right in the same office. Uh, they can literally perform collaborative testing via new remote asynchronous runtime technologies um, that allow them to literally do their unit testing in real time. And they can actually kind of watch the uh, how the actual microservices perform. Uh, and they can actually watch their own little section of, of code um, and then uh, debug. So you, you literally have, um, you can have four or five software developers Stepping through their code, uh, you know, in 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 relative real time, um, and that's actually very cool. You, we, years ago, we never could, we actually can never do that. Okay, that sounds really cool. But what exactly is that about? Well, remember, um, microservices are small, um, and they're only usually serviced by one or two developers. Um, there can be several microservices um, per team. Uh, and they can test the interoperation of those services in real time from different locations, different companies, and, and even um, different corporate divisions. Did not know that could be done. Okay, where do they ultimately live? Okay, um, again, as I mentioned before, there's 
many flavors of that. But basically, there's a traditional way, and then there's the non-traditional way. The traditional way is basically to host microservices on virtual machines out on the cloud. Um, and there's two different types on that. One is to allocate a virtual machine to a microservices domain, which uh, could possibly have um, several microservices. And then the other way um, is to um, have um, a virtual machine have um, all the domains. That's usually not a good idea because they compete for resources. So generally you should limit a virtual machine to to one uh, microservice domain, to the accounting department, HR, um, you know, orders, uh, shopping cart, you know, whatever. Um, I think the, the way that's becoming the ultimate way is to containerize um, microservices. So essentially... You're shrink wrapping your microservices into, you know, little virtual uh, machines themselves, so to speak, uh, and um, you actually stack them uh, into a cloud environment. But for the purposes of this discussion, I'd rather elaborate more on again this the the latter of the three, which is um, uh, the, uh, which is containers. Okay, so deploying them as containers. Yes. Um, Definitely, um, I want to emphasize containers. Um, and again, uh, a, a container is a, a digital image of the microservice that's packaged um, with its uh, resource requirements in terms of memory and processing. Uh, almost a little computer by itself or a little virtual machine by itself. But it needs the fabric of a serverless cloud environment to survive and accommodate those resource needs. Wow, I never knew that this was possible. It's like a city of services sharing common utilities. Yes, exactly. Um, this is exactly what is called a serverless, a serverless environment, um, and it's becoming you know more and more popular. Uh, it's uh, it's a very very efficient way and probably a less costly way um, to uh, to host these kinds of services and and even other services. Um, so depending on your purpose or business model, either one of these deployment strategies is okay, but ultimately I think things are really moving towards the, the container style. Okay, now I'm a bit confused on how these microservices talk to apps that we see, click on and interact with, like a browser or a mobile app. Yeah, we forgot about those user interface apps, right? Right. Smart, <laughs> smartphones and browser apps, um, those are kind of important. Um, just a and, little, Tom. Right, I know. Um, and uh, so the uh, you really have to um, have a very um, well-articulated environment uh, to do that well. And um, the uh, you really have to have clean design, and you have to have the ability to maintain uh, the microservice, uh, you know, containerized deployment. Oh, you mean there's a sanitation department? <laughs> uh, no, not exactly. Um, there are best okay. practices in the way you orchestrate good design. Um, for a browser and smartphone application to communicate with this um, you know, community of services, microservices, if you will, um, what, is what is referred to as an API gateway. 
is a very good start. Let's take a small break and discuss API gateways when we come back. All right, we're back with Tom Fanera to discuss another great term, API gateway. Tom, could you elaborate on what an API gateway is for our audience? Of course. Um, an API gateway does many things for microservices. Uh, as I discussed prior, I think, a gateway stands between a browser app and a smartphone app and the microservices. So it's, it's in between. Um, your app on your phone, and these wonderful things called microservices. Um, it is literally the proxy between them, often referred to as a reverse proxy, but we don't really want to go into the details um, of that. Um, but firstly, um, it is a software program, so an API gateway is software. Um, it's also, uh, there are also some pretty good um, open source um, products out there that you can incorporate into your your code. Um, again, that that can get very very involved, um, but we so we really won't touch too much on that in this this section. Um, so, um, for instance, um, on my cell phone, um, I want to find what my orders are. I just ordered some shoes uh, online. Um, the cell phone app sends a single request to the API gateway. And the gateway routes that request to perhaps 40 microservices to package up all the data to compose the order screen on my little smartphone app. The orchestrator, I got it. I'm getting more intrigued. What else? Well, because the, ga the API gateway is positioned between the user's smartphone app and the microservices, uh, it can monitor a lot of things. It's positioned really, really well, particularly to monitor um, the loads that people are putting on the system, um, uh, and it can it can call it can it can make calls to um, other gateways, uh, other other gateway elements, um, and essentially call for help. Uh, this is usually called in a, in a in a uh, overloaded request situation. It's called load balancing. Got it. Okay, so how does it call for help? Uh, it will tell um, the uh, the container manager or uh, cluster orchestrator to replicate more microservices. So it literally will clone them um, very, very fast. Um, it knows to distribute that load to these replicated microservices. So it would literally make a copy of the payables microservices, maybe five. And it knows how to distribute the, the user load. Um, so apps don't experience, so users don't experience some, you know, slow requests mm -hmm. and responses. That's so cool. Uh, what else? I just know that there's more. What's really cool is developers um, can make continuous changes patches, um, add new features, um, uh, and those changes are queued by the orchestrator, um, and the orchestrator will literally hot swap out the old microservice and put in the new one, and it won't disturb the user's experience. Now, that's, that's really, really neat. 
Okay, I'm sold, Tom. I want to build a gateway. <laughs> um, you can. It's easy. Um, uh, and uh, uh, last, uh, lastly, gateways control, you know, authorization, security, um, access to microservices, um, and then monitors the overall health of the microservice. Um, okay, so now you got me. The health? Yes. Um, it will actually... Um, uh, it can actually log and study trends uh, and weaknesses. This is often called um, uh, cross-cutting uh, okay. uh, condition. Um, so it'll, it'll actually cross-cut through all the microservices and, and uh, report on um, their performance and how well they're, they're doing. Got it. Makes sense, Tom. Imagine that, something actually making sense. That's right. That's right. Imagine that. All right, folks, we reached the end of part two of Microservices for Everyone, the architecture and development team. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and got value from it. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you're feeling generous, head over to Apple and leave us a rating and review. We would greatly appreciate that. Stay tuned for more episodes to come. Until then, have a good day.